buy less doesn't mean that's a threat to business. To your point, Brendan, you know, this is where alternative and innovative business models uh, you know, can still pursue responsible prosperity uh, without having to sell stuff. Welcome to Play in Conversations, the podcast where we delve into the world of design and explore the endless opportunities that await designers and brands. I'm Simon Martin, Head of Content Strategy at Plan Co. And joining me is Brendan Hutchison, the Founder and Director of Plan Co. Hey, everyone. Together, we'll be your hosts as we embark on insightful design conversations that inspire and inform. Get ready for an extraordinary episode as we sit down with Australia's eco-design guru. In addition to his role at the Product Stewardship Centre of Excellence, John is an adjunct professor at UTS, co-founder of the E-Waste Watch Institute, and an ambassador for Good Design Australia. But beyond all of that, John is a lover of nature. He loves hiking, kayaking, anything outdoors. And as long as there's a warm pub at the end of the trail, he's on board. Join us as we dive into his world where sustainability and storytelling collide. Prepare for an inspiring fireside chat filled with anecdotes and insights in John's unmistakable warm, gravelly voice. We hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as we enjoyed recording it. And with that, let's kick things off. So tell us, John, who is John? Who is John? John is, uh, is a, uh, a late career uh, practitioner that's, that's really worked very much around product sustainability issues for, for, for a few decades. Um, I grew up uh, originally in urban Melbourne, uh, moved to the coast, um, down onto the Mornington Peninsula, um, spent a lot of time in my high school days uh, on dirt bikes, uh, surfing, uh, shooting invasive species such as rabbits and foxes, but really deep down taking a great interest in nature. Uh, we lived uh, backing onto uh, bush and farmland um, and spent a lot of time, whether it was in the water, surfing, whether it was uh, out in the bush on bicycles, uh, motorbikes, uh, doing other things. Uh, so, you know, sort of very much a, an idyllic lifestyle for a a young boy in in that in that sense, um, you know, my high school days were uh, were all over the shop in terms of subjects that I enjoyed and what would I want to do. But you know, the two subjects when I look back uh, in terms of my education were geography and what they then called graphic design. They were the two things that I loved the most. Not so much physics, not so much chemistry, not so much economics, but those two subjects. So it's interesting, the two subjects that I really enjoyed and thrived at back then, and, and in fact, you know, what I still really value and see as important today. So you know, I grew up in there, finished high school, then went, uh, went to the city and, and studied civil engineering and civil engineering drafting, and, and worked in that for a few years um, as you know, a young adult, uh, designing sewerage reticulation systems and doing surveying. And I didn't, you know, it was good fun. It was outside, but I didn't really enjoy it. And that's around that time, we had the Franklin uh, River campaign, uh, you know, a major conservation battle in Tasmania in Australia, um, of this you know, pristine river and, and landscape and really you know, again, as a young adult exposed to this issue going on where this really important landscape was being compromised and destroyed. And, and at that point, um, you know, in my early 20s, I thought, you know, this is, this is really important. This is where I'm going to spend my working days and hours working on these sorts of issues. And that's when I decided to go back to university as a mature age student. And I went to RMIT and, and I did 
a Bachelor of Social Science in Socio-Environmental Assessment and Policy. It was really quite a, a revolutionary um, undergraduate degree because it acknowledged increasingly what sustainability was. It wasn't just about environmental management. It was about the social dimension, the economic dimension, the environmental dimension. And we had some amazing uh, lecturers and academics and professors who really got us thinking about, well, what is sustainability? What should it be uh, across different you know, industries, sectors and communities? And and uh, so those years doing that course were really quite significant for me, I must say. Uh, you know, and my undergraduate thesis, again, a little bit obtuse and often, but it was the study of the role of photographic images in environmental campaigns. So it wasn't, you know, let's count koalas or, uh, or, or anything that is, you know, hardcore you know, ecology. It was really looking at these other, other dimensions and other factors which influence public opinion, influence politicians, influence unions, influence industry, et cetera, and the role of photography. So, and really finished that degree and then went head first into, uh, into sort of professional activities, uh, a few years with, with government, uh, which was a great learning, but thoroughly uninspiring and too slow to act. Um, and then, and then went to work for the environment movement for a couple of years, which was really exciting and learning new skills there. But then after that, I landed back at RMIT with my old professor, a guy called Chris Ryan, an amazing guy who set up at that time, Australia's key center for design at RMIT. And its entire focus was on design and its intersection with sustainability or the role of design in delivering sustainable outcomes. And Chris was well-versed, well-informed, uh, working with the Dutch universities, Sweden, the Italians, etc., the Domus Academy, the Technical University of Delft. So heavily influenced by that centre and Chris Ryan's work uh, around what we used to call eco-design um, back in those days. Um, so that there, and so 10 years there working on a range of issues. A lot of it as an environmental advisor to industrial designers on project teams. We were very much an applied research centre, not lecturing, working with companies, uh, with Cambrook, Blackmores, uh, Dishlex and the appliance company, Chevello Commercial Interiors. Uh, and really that was a deeply formative time uh, in, uh, in, in what I'm doing today. And it really has continued around the practice and the policy of yeah, of, of product sustainability, uh, whether it's about policy, regulations, right down to the, the the specific work of being on still even today on design teams, providing advice on circularity, on sustainability, on environment, uh, on new product development exercises. So that's that's a sort of try to you know, you know, highlight. And, and the interest in the landscape and nature continues in terms of my non-work activity and my social activities um, still very much uh, you know, a keen uh, bushwalker, uh, cross-country skier, um, have just acquired a beautiful sea kayak. Uh, a <laughs> so I'm a fair weather paddler on lakes and estuaries. Um, so that love for and respect of nature and the landscape whilst working on sort of what I'd call, you know, hardcore industrial issues and new product development, all of that continues. John, you've done this before, haven't you? <laughs> uh, right after. But... Um... No, it's really wonderful to hear in a in a soundbite, you know, that's succinctly like a journey from being a young boy to like present day, um, you know, the person behind the career. Because quite often people get brought on to 
to interviews or a, a podcast or, or the like, and um, they get asked to speak on a particular topic, but no one really understands who that person is. You ended there on Lover of Nature, and um, I think it was yesterday or the day before where Simon was like, oh, can you just have a look at the questions and see if they're on, on track? And I was like, oh, shit, who is John? Uh, <laughs> so you might have you've seen me um instagram stalking you over the past day or two and uh i think yeah, i really love your your blue planet handle um some magic in there uh and everything that you you just talked to it, it sort of comes from this you know, you know there's a really rich personality there um I was telling simon about cabin a uh oh yes and yeah. you just said cabin a as if it's it, you, you you created the name to sound like a red wine. Of course. Yeah, we're Australians. We love wine. And plus where I live in the Victorian Alps, the Alpine Valleys are full of vineyards making exceptional uh, reds and whites. But, yeah, no, look, it, it is um, for me in some respects there is no formal division between the importance of what I do professionally and what I'm paid for and and my sort of you know non-work activities um yeah i've got two wonderful kids they're both young adults yeah they i spend time with with them they visit me uh up at cabernet uh, one of them's keen on the outdoors the other one's keen on on comedy film music uh both of them have one of them works in design and branding and is exceptional the other one is doing a masters in cultural materials conservation so we're almost like yeah we're a family unit but we're also like a project team when we get together. You know, they give me advice. They tell me to slow down on my Instagram posts and stop posting so much dribble. Um, but, you know, we're all interested in design, the environment, society, uh, you know, doing good, I suppose. Um, and uh, so, you know, the dogma that I've shared with them at the dinner table as young ones has worked because they're good young people. So that that social and personal side um, is uh, is very important to me to see. You know, we just need more humans doing good things, um, and uh, and you know, wonderful to see. Uh, it's almost my son is the frust- you know, is the designer, you know, formally trained in that space, working in that space, but sort of playing out my frustrations that I should have been a designer <laughs> years ago. He's doing it, and my daughter's, um, you know, she's heading to be a, a curator or a, a, you know, working in museums and galleries. So, yeah, that all of that is a positive blur between the social and the professional and family and friends, um, which is uh, which makes life rich and rewarding. I must say, John, you seem to have manifested your career as it is today on the note of how you apply that to industrial design and, and brand clients how have you learned to quantify various tangibles of sustainable values for clients and how do you define deliverables for impact design it's a good question and, and sorry to come back with a cliched response but it's a really good question because you know impact is so important these days in this space there's a lot of commentary around design and the environment. Uh, as I often say, and I borrowed it from a, a colleague, you know, there's a lot of cheerleaders around circular design, but not enough athletes, you know, <laughs> the, the, you know, in that sense. So I suppose how do I quantify or how do I measure impact or, uh, you know, achieving certain things? You know, some of it is qualitative, some of it is quantitative. You know, because I work across, you know, both the policy and practice of, uh, you know, good design and sustainability, you know, at a very specific level, it'll be around if I'm on a project team, a design team, uh, where they're developing a new product or product service is 
um, you know, uh, making sure, for example, that specific uh, sustainability criteria are built into the design brief, uh, that I'm not there as an add-on, that, that this is formally acknowledged in the design brief, that the team must pursue, uh, address and deliver on whatever the specific sustainability requirements might be. So that is one important thing because sustainability often is, a, is an add-on. It's not in the design brief, which makes it extra hard for designers and everyone involved in the product development process to, to really have the power and to be enabled to do it. If it's in the design brief, it's good. Then as we're moving through that project, if the ideas and advice that I'm putting forward, uh, you know, some of those are being adopted, all of them are being adopted, another mark of there's some, there's some impact here. And then ultimately it is, you know, has this, has, has the exercise resulted in commercialization? Has the product actually been uh, developed and landed somewhere and, and has gone to market? And so, you know, that's, that to me in, in many respects is, is an important um, outcome in terms of my contribution. Has, does, has the product or, or a process within that company? And sometimes it's not a product. Sometimes I'm invited in to develop a product stewardship framework uh, with a business. And, um, you know, has that been, uh, you know, uh, adopted uh, by the board? Um, and is it, is it uh, part of what that business is doing? The other part of uh, my work where, you know, how do you look at impact is, yeah, we do a lot of work uh, with government, especially with um, our national government, the Australian government around policy and programs and, uh, you know, the regulations, et cetera. And, and so providing input there and advice and perspectives, sometimes adopted, sometimes not, um, is also really, really important. Uh, sometimes less tangible um, in the near term, but you know, we're, we're together, and it's, this is teamwork. This is not about me as an individual. You know, it's all my other wonderful colleagues with um, the Product Stewardship Centre of Excellence and um, University of Technology, Sydney's Institute for Sustainable Futures. But how has our input, our insights, our lived experience in this space influenced policy, influenced legislation? Because to me, at the end of the day, that's by default addressing the need for a sustainable future. It's addressing by default across certain regulations and policies, the need to better deal with uh, e-products, uh, whatever the product category might be. Um, you know, whether, whether a consumer is a fully paid up um, eco-warrior or not, that everyone benefits from good environmental outcomes, good sustainability policies, well-designed products, et cetera. So, you know, that's that's how I start to, you know, uh, uh, you know quantify is a good word, but it's also just measure my own um, and the, the team that I work with, our contribution and our impact is, you know, are we seeing better policies? Are we seeing regulations that are addressing you know, you know, real problems? Are we seeing... Um, the building of capability and understanding of key decision makers, government officials, uh, C-suite, uh, board directors, uh, design teams, you know, the more you know, that capability upskilling, reskilling is, is very important. So there's lots of different indicators you could say, Simon, around, you know, uh, you know what is being achieved. And, and I'll be honest, you know, along the way, lots of learnings about what has failed? What hasn't worked? What hasn't been impactful? Where we haven't been able to crack it with, with um, you know, key decision makers and executives within companies. So I wouldn't for one moment say that everything we do is uh, is sharply tuned in and successful every time. We've learned a lot over the years, and there's still a lot more to learn and, and reform. Before we dive further into our conversation with John, we'd like to take a moment to remind you that Play in Conversations is brought to you by Play and Co. 
If you want to explore more about design opportunities, discover new insights, or connect with PlanCo for a design project, be sure to visit planco.com. John, if you were to take somebody like Apple, which is cliche, but a great example, they have their Daisy robot that disassembles iPhones and reclaims materials to put into new iPhones. While effective, this is an extreme example of a cradle-to-cradle mindset. What about a smaller design agency or brand that might not have the same level of resources as a Fortune 500 company? How can they take some of the idealisms you just discussed and put those into practice? There are, there are a few different pathways here. One, I think it's always inspiring, um, no matter what discipline or domain you're in, is, is, to, is to scan the landscape around you, not to plagiarize, not to mimic, but to be inspired by the work of others. So simply looking at what are others doing, whether it's a design studio, an SME, a big company, small company, whatever it might be, but to be inspired, I suppose, by the work of others in this field, even if it's outside the category work you're working on. You might be working on um, something electronic, a small device for consumer use, but there might be something that's happening in the fashion and apparel area around sustainability that has relevance here, either the business model or a particular philosophy underpinning the, the, uh, the design process, and really sort of learn, being inspired uh, I suppose, by what I would call really um, interesting exemplars of what others are doing. You know, so for example, the guys in the Netherlands, um, you know, formerly Gerard Street now call repeat with their earphones, you know, durability, repairability, you don't have to buy them, you can lease them, parts for, parts for life, you know, et cetera. Looking at those sorts of companies, Looking at what Fairphone have done, uh, they're an SME um, uh, in terms of whether you- we're a little bit closer to home. Um, Allbirds, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So all of that stuff is really inspiration from the good work of our peers and and competitors in some cases. So I think that's one way of doing it. I think yeah. So that's something real, I suppose. Whether they end up as just concepts or commercialized or whatever, there's lots of you know, there's more of those examples. Not enough but there's more of them happening all the time. And I think looking to those, I think the other thing is there is no shortage of if you're working on, again, say electronics uh, or or, um, furniture or textiles and apparel uh, or mobility devices to to search and find really useful uh, cookbooks or what I call you know, recipes, guidelines, checklists, they exist, you know, and I think, um, you know, whether it's designing greener e-products, designing greener furniture, be it commercial or domestic, etc. there's lots of good information out there. Um, the thing is to be selective uh, and to look at what's what's relevant to your area. And that's how, you know, uh, sole practitioners, small, small firms, individual designers can, you know, equip themselves, tool up, um, uh, empower themselves to to really uh, learn and then act. Um, but I'm a big fan of exemplars and being inspired by the work of others. You know, leadership doesn't have to be with big, as you say, you know, public companies and uh, uh, Fortune 500, etc. It can be leadership can be in in you know good design, sustainable design can take place at a, a very small scale and can be very inspiring in your own in your own town, in your own city, in the product categories that you that you work in. And but you know, having said that, I'd acknowledge that you know this is an area that is really important because you know 
um, SMEs and small studios and individual practitioners need all the support they can get. So this is where you know, they deserve more design support from government. You know, government gives a lot of money to recycling and end of end of pipe solutions and this machine for that and all the rest of it. Um, but you know, in terms of Australia, there is a great need to uh, to uh, provide more support to designers and the end users of design uh, through advice, through mentoring. Uh, I always hold up high um, New Zealand's uh, Better by Design program, uh, Victorian government's Design to Thrive program, where these sorts of programs assist companies, small and big, um, to make good use of design, to see the investment in design delivering on return on investment, uh, et cetera. So you know, this is this is a challenge in terms of you know and and yeah, Brendan, you may have a view on this, but you know it's hard enough elevating the importance of good design generally, let alone when we're starting to expand the definition of good design to address circularity and sustainability. Yeah, there's still cliched interpretations of what designers do, um, and it's all about wonderful renderings and 3D models on screens and pretty pictures. And you know, it's a very simplistic and uninformed view, especially sometimes by policymakers. So, you know, I think there is a role there for government to support design to address the question you've asked, Simon, around what they can do. And I think you know, you know a government buying alone and procurement can drive better design and 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 practices to respond. Um, to uh, those sorts of uh, objectives. Yeah, I mean, so much to unpack there. I don't, I don't know if I have much more to add. I mean, I think um, I, from from where I sit, and I think it'd be interesting to hear Simon's thoughts too, I, I do believe that uh, leaders, to your point, leaders don't have to come from the top. Uh, when you were talking through that, uh, my head went to uh, Boyan Slat, the, the kid, uh, the Dutch kid that set up the Ocean Cleanup Project. Um and I just I'm constantly amazed by um, the, the hurdles that he's overcome. You know, from giving that TED talk to being trash talked by uh, you know environmentalists and skeptics and and everyone in the beginning because he's just a 16 year old kid. And what does he know? Uh, built a prototype, took it out into the Great Pacific garbage patch, failed. There was a lot of like, see, I told you so, I told you so. Took it back to the San Francisco Bay, re-engineered the shit out of it, re-engineered the shit out of it took it back out and now it's like cleaning up like crazy. Not only that, the research that they did in parallel was like, well, holy shit, there's only a handful of rivers that are really responsible around the world for this stupid amount of plastic ending up in the oceans. And so they went to the source. They went to Indonesia. They went to Africa. Uh, they went to the bloody, what's that river just below, um, just above LAX in LA, um, where Marina Del Rey is, and they're putting in what they're calling interceptors and uh, working with governments, to your point, about taking trash out of the out of the waterways and um, doing massive, super inspirational things. They're partnering also with uh, other design firms to create great products from the material that's coming out. You're spot on there. And, and I suppose what that's saying is we need, we need interventions at all levels. We need governments to have good policies and regulations and provide funding yeah. support where it's needed. Um, we need big companies to be taking the responsibility that they should be taking. They're placing products on the market. They should take responsibility. But you know, that should be a universal. Mm. But we need that work 
as you as you as the scale drops down at every level and right down to the individual. And you know, Victor Papanek in Design for the Real World back in the sixties, as I recall, wrote about this as the role and responsibility of individual designers. Not easy at all. And um, but you know, you know, is it the Dalai Lama that says mm. you know he talks about impact in an interesting way? He says, you know. See yourself as the mosquito, that one mosquito buzzing around you at night while you're trying to fall asleep. What's the impact there? <laughs> Obviously, until the mosquito is slapped out of existence. But, you know, there are different ways of having an impact and, inter- and, and intervening in that space. I've always thought that designers are the ultimate problem solvers, especially industrial designers, product designers, and increasingly now moving into service design. Um, yeah, they have the skills and the knowledge they just don't have always the imprimatur from the client, uh, from the end user of their services. I think it's less about, oh, let's all do a masterclass in eco-design. I think it's more about, what does, has the client want this? Does the client want a sustainable product or product as a service or whatever it might be? If they do and it's invested in and it's in the brief, the designers don't even have to be you know, eco-design experts. They will quickly learn what needs to be done with this polymer, that material, this production method, this consumer interface, the experience the consumer might have, whatever. Designers and engineers, product developers can rise to that very quickly. It's almost that the end users of design need to rise to that more quickly. That's what, I'm, that's what I believe isn't happening enough. We're seeing more of it, but not enough. On that note, John, various right to repair movements are gaining momentum and are providing new opportunities for industrial designers and brands to create new connections with their audiences. For those unfamiliar, the right to repair movement seeks to allow consumers to repair their own devices rather than depending on the manufacturer. This is a hot topic due to various intellectual property hurdles, but is gaining momentum nonetheless. From your vantage point, John, where do you see this movement going in the near future? I think the repair um, movement generally is an incredibly positive step forward. I'm, I'm of the view that uh, I, my starting point is the importance of repair uh, as opposed to um, the importance of right to repair in isolation. You know, I'm still interested in seeing that all products are designed uh, to be more durable, to be um, more repairable. Um, If in some product categories there is a great appetite for self-repair and the right to repair, that's fine, that's good, that should be supported and enabled. Um, But I always cite the example of my um, elderly family member and her microwave has just broken down She doesn't want to, nor should she, have to worry about self-repair. She shouldn't have to line up at the farmer's market and attend the repair cafe. What she wants is her product to keep going. So if there is a repair shop in the high street and it's affordable and they can do a good job, that's just as important. So I'm very careful about... Um, repair not becoming a tribe that is very that's already converted that's already doing this etc that you know to me the measurable benefit overall is that durability and repairability is is embedded through design and manufacturing and after sales service and regardless is universal because that's when we'll start to see the benefits back to the days when uh, certain product categories and you know and this is an area that we need to be careful about generalizing but certain products were designed to last um, you know, many small appliances these days are waste in transit. They are short life yeah. trips, products, short trips, yeah, limited trips, etc. So, but having said that, you know, right to pair is so important. The appetite here in Australia, uh, Europe, North America, as you guys know, is 
is phenomenal. Um, what the key is, in, in my view, is the need for segmentation. Uh, I think if we want solutions over the near term, the medium term around repair and design, for, we have to segment and we have to look at, well, what does repair and right to, remain, right to repair mean for electronics? What does it mean for furniture? What does it mean for sporting equipment? What does it mean for agricultural equipment? The big hot issue, Colorado, the States, and now in Australia. What does it mean for vehicles? You know, everyday passenger vehicles. When you get into what repair and right to repair and durability means for each of those categories, that's when you can start to identify what the solutions might be, either from a design perspective or the French with their repairability index for um, small devices, uh, so that there's consumer information that then also drives the OEMs to improve the design for repairability features of their products. So I'm a big believer in repair needs to repairability and durability needs to be universal um, and we need solutions, but they need to be tailored to a you know, to particular product categories and they need to be there to the benefit, you know, measurable benefit of society and the environment, not just to those who, you know, uh, see it as a, a, you know, an empowering consumer activity. I completely agree with that and I do it myself and, you know, uh, it's really, really important. And iFixit has played such an important role in that space to enable, equip people to do that. But there is more to it than self-repair. That's what I'd say. Having said that, here in Australia, um, I'm very eager to see, you know, sensible right to repair policies and regulations uh, be developed. Um, the Productivity Commission here in Australia has made very specific recommendations about the need for a repairability star rating, similar to what France has done, um, and to pilot those. You know, we already have star ratings in Australia for appliances, uh, for energy star rating. We have a water efficiency labelling system and a star rating. We have the online platform and infrastructure there to add a third band to those categories, a repair star rating. So, you know, these things are doable, but it requires... Um, you know, uh, consumers and the community to want it, demand it. It requires policymakers to listen and to act. And then it requires governments and elected officials, you know, uh, parliamentarians, et cetera, to, uh, to have the willpower to act. So, you know, there's a number of things here that need to be done. By getting specific on repair and product categories to me and how it relates to design is really important. And I think uh, I just want to pick up on what you said. It requires consumers to want it. Where we often go in play and co, like when Simon, Jason, Karen and I, when we're all riffing as a team on on how design can potentially help this or what the opportunity is for designers, we're like, well, if we were to create a utopian uh, kind of um, uh, scenario 10 years out, if someone gave us, I don't know, 10 million, 50 million bucks right now and said, build a company that is emblematic of what repair should be about in 10 years, We'd be like, genius bar on acid, right? We would be like, this could train the kids, right? STEM, you could have STEM classes, you could have VR, and people put on VR headsets, they could spin around digital twins of their product. You could say, step one, pull this out, throw that in. Beautiful, beautifully FedExed kind of parts right to your doorstep, all laid out with Lego-like instructions. Think about company 2.0. I think I mean, if you just got that shot, and it doesn't have to be 10 or 50 million bucks either, by the way. I think we could get the, the Australian government to get, get pony up a bit of money for John and Planco to uh, blueprint something like that. 
<laughs> well, this is you know, that, you know, what you're saying is you're putting you're putting meat on the bones around what I talk about uh, in terms of inspiration and exemplars and future scenarios uh, and all the rest of it. And all of those things that you've mentioned, many of them are here now. And this is where circularity is so important because circularity is about thinking system-wide, as you've just described it, systemic change, joining the dots between these currently uh, isolated silos that do good things, but when you bring them together uh, in terms of a system-wide shift uh, in order to address the objectives of a achieve the objectives of the circular economy of designing out waste and pollution, all of these things, and then how do we prolong the life of products and their components and the materials, and then how do we make sure that it is restorative and regenerative and 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 has a positive impact, not just less bad and less harm and a little bit efficient, more efficient, but it is restorative and regenerative, and then of course underpinned by decarbonising uh, the economy and products and services. So what you've described is a wonderful scenario, and and you know these are the things that we do need to pursue. This is where government has a role to support the creation of these sorts of mm. scenarios. I don't think they're utopian. I think they're you know environmentally essential. Yeah, I mean, think of the possibilities, like creating desirability and consumer awareness through a, a reality TV show where you it's like Lego 2.0. And I know that the Scandinavians, you know, they have, they have um, a natural disposition towards this. You mentioned Fairphone, um, Cake Motorcycles. Um, there's a whole host of them that I don't even know about um, that are really at the forefront of this. But I, I do... Um, I think Australia, Australian designers uh, uh, definitely have the chops to totally to rise to that level. Totally, I have no doubt whatsoever mm. that Australian designers and designers, you know, in many countries, but you know, I'm, we're here in Australia, and you know, uh, in terms of my perspective, and the design designers and the design firms that I've come across and have worked with over the years, people like Mark Armstrong. Mm. Um, founder of Blue Sky Design and now practice professor with Monash Uni, um, people like Jerry Mussett, um, you know, from Form Australia and, and many others, uh, Outer Space, Cobalt, you know, various firms, Vert Design, you know, your, your, your own thinking with, with, with Play and Co. Um, we've got brilliant designers and product developers and design engineers. They can, and there are examples where they have risen to the challenge, but they need the right clients or they need more clients mm. uh, and more briefs that embed this so that they are empowered mm. and and enabled and and we do need a bit more sophistication in some respects you know to sort of elevate that you know good design sustainable design circular design is more than recycled content in a product this is a very simplistic 90s view we need to do that you know where appropriate where possible where it doesn't compromise functionality usability safety we do that but there's just so many other opportunities from a design led approach to look at what does this exercise mean for sustainability? Is it about dematerializing the product? Is it a product as a service sort of model? Uh, how is this product dealing with possible use of renewable materials uh, more effectively? Uh, how do we design in durability and longer lasting uh, product use, whether that's through upgrading and information intensive uh, sort of features that you, you know, basically reprogram, you know, like Miele have done probably now for a decade. Um, the, the Miele white box clothes wash has not changed aesthetically, more or less. But by Jingo, you look inside and their ability to upgrade, uh, to adjust wash cycles, to perform better with the latest 
dishwashing detergents to operate at lower temperatures and therefore use less energy and use less water is phenomenal. And that's the technician, the Miele technician coming out, reprogramming the wash cycles. It's not about chucking it out and let's get, you know, let's upgrade and get a new washer. Yeah, and what you were just talking about, I know if Jason were on this call, he'd start waxing lyrical on the Tesla Model 3. He worked on the Model 3 and Tesla kind of pioneered that for automotive too, right? Like build one design, one car platform that'll last. Exactly that. Over a decade. Exactly that. You know, and firmware updates, software updates, rather than replacing hard parts, uh, it's, it's like it was revolutionary for the automotive industry, but now it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And this is where when we talk about, you know, circularity and sustainability, you know, classic, that's a classic example of how do you keep, you know, the principle number two of circular economy, you know, prolong the life of products and components and materials, you know, keep them circulating, you know, that keeping that core Bit of hardware running longer, you know, the chassis, the platform, whatever, um, yeah. and then updating. What we need to be careful of, uh, and you see the general uh, public criticism across all, uh, you know, handset manufacturers is when you start to, you know, when software starts to bloat products or trigger premature obsolescence because of software. So we do need to get the balance right around um, software upgrades that don't render the hardware um, obsolete. Um, so we do need to keep thinking about that, and I think yeah, we will we will get there, and uh, we need to get there. Otherwise, uh, it's problematic. But you know, this is where design for modularity and upgrading is just as important, if not more important, for some product categories, as opposed to let's put more recycled content into this. You know, I think Australia needs to do a lot of work in this space to get more sophisticated about what circular economy and circular design means, uh, as opposed to you know we've got you know. I suppose the cliche or the analogy I use is, you know, is, you know, we chase ambulances sometimes, you know, band-aid type solutions to some of these problems. And what aggravates it is sometimes we chase ambulances at the bottom of the cliff. You know, we really have to do, we think cradle to cradle. We have to think back up the supply chain, back up the life cycle. Um, and this is where the literature tells us, and we know through experience, you know, substantially up to you know, 70 to 80% of a product's environmental impact uh, and cost-related issues are determined at the design stage. Well, let's give life to that, invest in that. There's an analogy there with human health. Uh, and you know, prevention is better than cure. Every dollar spent on prevention of environmental issues at the design stage is a wonderful return uh, downstream where we're constantly trying to, you know, these end of pipe solutions. Uh, so, you know, that's really important. And again, underscores the, you know, the power and the potency of good design and in being able to do that. John, how much do you think the circularity argument falls on the consumer to be self-sufficient in terms of understanding sustainability concepts versus a brand or a manufacturer to take that upon themselves in a unified user experience? And that issue is an ongoing um, challenge. You know, there is a need to improve, um, how should we say this, um, both design literacy and environmental literacy and understanding of of consumers generally, not just those that are converted. So, you know, this is something where environmental education at all levels is important, but I would add to that, given what we're talking about and who we are, design literacy and what constitutes good design. And, and good design, 
does involve environmental performance and all, uh, and, and, and good outcomes in terms of product lifespan and efficiency and what they're made from and after beyond the, beyond the point of sale and warranties that the, that the brand is there helping them out to manage its environmental impact. But I think this is where, you know, where we do need to invest much more in that. And that requires, you know, um, uh, both companies to develop greener products and services uh, as a general principle and approach. But it, but it also requires the right sorts of policies to stimulate companies to do that so that it does, by default, benefit everyone, whether they're you know, lining up at a repair, repair cafe or not. And this is why I like the French uh, Repairability Index. There's two parts to that, as I see it. One is um, they, have a sta- they have a rating system with criteria that scores different things, you know, parts availability, service manuals, all the rest of it. Um, the, the cost of, uh, as a ratio of getting something repaired versus buying a new product, a whole lot of criteria. And then they get scored on how repairable that smartphone handset is. Um, but coupled with that, they're required to put on the box, on the packaging, at the point of sale, what that rating is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is then the consumer can see this and and start to look at it and say, well, look, I can get the, and I'm making these numbers up, I can get the 20 euro uh, kettle by brand X and uh, it's got a three out of five rating or, or whatever the number is. Or I can, I can spend 20 euros more, 10 euros more and get brand Y and it's got the, mm-hmm. the best possible repair rating. And they can start to make their own decisions as well around, you know, if I spend a little bit more, uh, I'm going to get a uh, more durable, more repairable product. The, what we have to address there are uh, access and inequity. We don't want this to become a sort of niche activity that, or a premium product that only those that can afford it um, can uh, uh, can benefit here. So I think there's it, you know, environmental literacy needs to go up, design literacy needs to go up, and, and circular design needs to be embedded as a must-have with anyone placing yeah. a product on the market. You know, that's that. Then you benefit the environment benefits regardless um, of whether you have a keen interest um, in the environmental performance of your of the product you're thinking of buying or leasing or, or whatever. If you have a star rating too, big companies that care about their brand are gonna by default not want to be a three out of five. So a Philips is going to strive for a four or a five out of five, and and it's just going to be rolled down from the top. It's going to it's going to be like guys within the next twenty four months, anything on the product roadmap needs to be a four or a five out of five. That's just what we're going to do, or else we've got no hope in uh, the Benelux, you know, the, the the big European markets, and so that's that's a huge thing. So the it's it becomes a bit of a wave that consumers just kind of fall in line with. Because it becomes the new norm, right? What gets ma- measured gets managed. But your point is a really is, is right. Yeah. You know, to me, the benefits here ultimately yeah. are around normalisation. That it becomes these things become universal. Um, that you don't have to have a fully paid up membership of every environment group to order us to understand the benefit of purchasing environmentally improved products and services. And I think where I've seen it, where I've seen the strategies like this work really well, particularly in the United States, is in new business models. New service models. I mean, I think if I've worked, I've worked in Asia, I've worked in Europe, I've worked in Australia, and I've worked in US. I have never seen a market as quick to adapt to a new business model as in the US and maybe China. Um, 
But, uh, you know, you think about Airbnb, you think about Revolution Uber, and they you, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet, but it's redefined the way people tr- experience travel, Airbnb. And the and they could have been a, you know, they could have gone the, down the rabbit hole of being a kind of a, an, an alternative to hotels, but they've stayed true to their brand and they've fostered this idea of global community. Um and so it's a bit off topic. It's not about products specifically, but if back to Simon's question, if you make the service for someone who doesn't, who reparability is not top of mind, but if you make the service that desirable and that um, easy and ease is a big thing in America, right? Amazon, like I order something and in some cities I get two hour delivery, free delivery, <laughs> free delivery in two hours. It's if you make it so stupid easy, then um, then of course it's a no-brainer. Look, I would say that new, you know, new and alternative and innovative business models are not separate to this. I would say they are absolutely relevant to this because they provide the context, the framework within a product or a service can can operate. It's an integrated approach. You know, a business. You know, so you know, innovative business models that are underpinned by. Sustainability objectives, circularity objectives, uh, you know, can bring to life and harness the features, environmental features of a particular product because it's, you know, it's not, you know, different products have different impacts at different life cycle stages. And sometimes it's the business model that can make a difference in terms of what about the second life or the end of life or the, 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 you know, third life of this product. And what's the business model that allows that, you know, in a simplistic way. Just to quickly summarise, Fuji Xerox with business imaging equipment pioneered this two, three decades ago. We're going to sell less photocopiers. We're going to lease them. And we're not leasing, you know, this is not about, you know, why buy hardware when you can lease a printed white page, whatever that is, you know, we're selling function here. We're selling the, yeah. the service, not the hardware. And in sell by mean, you know, we're leasing, you know, so it's functionality. At the end of the day, it's that. And we did this, some of our early work at RMIT Centre for Design, where we worked with Canbrook on a kettle, um, uh, the Eco Kettle. Uh, it won a Powerhouse Award. Um, it got a, an Australian Design Award for its attention to energy efficiency and designed for disassembly and recycling way back then. It was one of the first 360-based kettles created by Jerry Mussett and Paul Taylor from Form Design with Chris Ryan and, and our team at the Centre for Design at RMIT. But, you know, our starting point there was, this. It, despite what management wanted, yeah, design me another electric jug. We said, whoa, let's, let's just look at the brief a bit more closely. Let's look at how we boil water more efficiently and for which practices. Uh, you know, for food preservation, uh, for making tea and coffee, for food preparation, for sterilizing things for babies, whatever. Let's look at what the product has to deliver. Uh, and that was our starting point. So we did a whole lot of research on how people use kettles. People go in and out of the kitchen two or three times, keep flicking the button. We said, right. And we did the first one here, more or less. Let's create a kettle that is effectively like a thermos. So the kettle was a double wall kettle, one of the first to keep water hotter longer. And this is where the impacts were. They weren't in, can we use a bit of recycled content and even can we design it for recycling and get it back? It was all about how do we improve energy efficiency and reduce energy consumption and improve user behavior. We had a thermochromatic label that would tell you 
that the water was still above 85 degrees uh, for much longer period. Um, uh, and when it was below that, it would change colour, you knew to boil it. And it's, it, it, you know, the aim there was to have you know, users, consumers, stop going back and forth to flick the button every time, even though the water was still hot enough. So, John, I'm going to be really disappointed if you say that you don't have one of these in Cabernet. I've got, I've got, <laughs> I've got two in my, in my crystal cabinet. Oh, yeah, the no-go zone, the no-touch zone. It's my scrapbook of trophies, ribbons and products that were commercialised or models that got close. Um, I have one. If you ever visit Cabernet, oh, yeah. uh, we'll plug it in and give it a bill. But they're still all packaged up and brand new. I'll send you I a do that too. Bit. Like some of the products I've designed, I just don't even take out of the box. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, and, you know, I mean, these are very personal things because yeah. we all invest blood, sweat and tears on, on product projects and product development exercises and, uh, and that was a great learning. You know, it, it was commercialised. It was on the market for two or three years. Oh, I love it. But we Fantastic. all know what small appliance companies are like. They need to put out a new, you know, a toaster or kettle or iron for the next Mother's Day or Christmas or whatever it might be. And, and this is mm-hmm. small appliances, mm-hmm. yeah, need to giddy up in this space in terms of circular design, I must say, and great potential. But I want to go back just quickly, if I can, your, the, your scenario, your concept of presenting a vision of, of circularity, sustainability, and design's contribution, and you know, 10xing the genius bar. Yeah. We need some of that. That's what will inspire yeah. business leaders and designers the whole lot, and that's something I, worth pursuing. Yeah, and you know, I, when I was working at um, in Seattle at the in the Pacific Northwest, I was working at Boeing for a couple of years, and we we managed to get a um, a tour of the Microsoft Envisioning Center. And that's basically what it was. It was envisioning new futures and it was prototyping these new scenarios and you could walk in and you could see what the office of the future would be like. And you're like, of course I want that. And then that would inform technology roadmaps and it inspire, you know, government people and um, heads of business. And um, I think it's, I mean, if we, if you, setting up an uh, an innovation center, a black box that only very important people could get into and, and sort of see what's behind the curtain could be very appealing. And um, so we, we got some things like that cooking in, in, at Play and Co. We do. What we need to do is work out a way of accelerating these sorts of processes and activities. We, it, your yeah. speed is important here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my one visit to the States was Seattle uh, in the 2000s. And I was a, uh, a guest of UW, University of Washington. Yep. And um, my role there was to run and facilitate um, a, a two-week masterclass with the industrial mm-hmm. design students at the University of Washington and King yes. County. And, and we had two companies participating in that process who provided our scenarios. And that was REI, with Recreational Equipment Industries, and Microsoft. And so we redesigned, yeah, the students redesigned backpacks, tents, down jackets. The, the, another group of students were, you know, designing keyboards made out of carrots. Um, you know, there's all sorts of stuff happening. And, you know, Louis St. Pierre was the head of the industrial design program there. Brilliant. And Thorpe, who was running sustainability at King County, the authority. And we had wonderful people, Colin Reedy, Domus Academy trained, you know, a serious mountaineer and backcountry skier still living in, uh, in Washington state. But, you know, so my point there is great work, exactly what I'd expect out of the Pacific Northwest and Simon, you know, you know you're Oregon, et cetera. Um, but, you know, how fast are we moving? That This is my frustration. Yeah. We're not moving fast enough to address the imperatives that need to be addressed, whether it's climate change, whether it's plastics pollution, the waste crisis, unsafe chemicals, et cetera. So that's, you know, whatever we can do to accelerate the process of adopting and doing 
good design, and by good design, I mean design that addresses all of those things, including sustainability and and safety and the user interface and all of those other things, uh, aesthetics, cost, price. You know, we need to speed that up. That's 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 what I'm going to spend the next few years doing really with my focus is is how do we accelerate the process of of achieving the impact not just having the cheerleaders run workshops and write articles okay john final question in a previous conversation we had you mentioned your favorite book growing up is my side of the mountain in this book the main character moves from the urban chaos of new york city to a wilderness area in the catskills uh, which for those who aren't familiar is about three hours north of the city. While there, he learns how to become self, self-sufficient self in the natural world. And by the end of the book, he has to strike a balance with the urban city-dwelling ways he grew up with and his new self-sufficient mindset. Would you say that this is a metaphor for how we should approach this new era of sustainable design? where maybe it's not all or nothing, but a logical compromise that's somewhere in the middle. I do. I, I think it's a, I think parts of it are a great uh, metaphor. I think it will have to be a hybrid. You know, there is great diversity out there in society and how we live and what we value and what we treasure. And, you know, people ride into city living, others into rural and remote living, et cetera. So I'm never one to impose this is the way you must live. But I see great learnings from, 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 from that story in, in that sense. And I think it is a matter of how do we do that sort of thing uh, in principle, uh, in how we work, how we live, how we play, et cetera. Um, I do think there is a need to, um, in some respects, uh, live more simply. But I'm not talking about, you know, that means we all have to eat brown rice out of jars. I'm talking about how we, how we really uh, need to question our desire for material objects and upgrading to the next new product and all the rest of it. Uh, I suppose the, you know, the mantra which, uh, uh, that I like, because I think it's adjustable no matter what you're doing, no matter what product you're looking at it or function or whatever is, is really paying homage to Vivian Westwood's, uh, mantra around, you know, buy less, choose well, make it last. Now that can play out in all sorts of different ways. Whether you live in the city, the mountains, the country, whatever. Whether you, you're buying a new television, uh, leasing a car, sharing, sharing power tools. You know, that mantra to me has great relevance and it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we have to go back and live in the cave. Um, this is really, uh, to me, something that can apply to high tech, uh, can apply to all sort of the, the functions and, and needs that we have in everyday life. So for me, that is uh, at this stage uh, of life and my experiences and learnings holds great weight. That, that line around, you know, buy less, choose well, make it last. You know, buy less, doesn't mean that's a threat to business. To your point, Brendan, you know, this is where alternative and innovative business models uh, you know, can still pursue responsible prosperity uh, without having to sell stuff. We hope you've enjoyed today's conversation and found it as inspiring as we did. From learning more about his design philosophies to his career arc in the sustainable design sector, John has certainly provided us with valuable insights that we can all learn from in the impact design space. If you want to continue the conversation, share your thoughts, or suggest topics for future episodes, be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Play Co. or visit playandco.com. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, keep playing, keep designing, and keep pushing the boundaries of what's next. This is Play in Conversations, signing off.